So Matthew 15, turn, cast your eyes down to verse 32. Verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. Well, let's pray as we consider these words together now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us such an awesome, compassionate Redeemer in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to respond to all who come to him. And please would you help us as we come to you now by your word, by your spirit, please be our teacher, be our guide, and grow our love for Jesus and our compassion towards others. We ask these things for Jesus' glory and honour. Amen. Compassion. It's an English word that literally means to suffer together. Uh, The Greek gives us a sense of suffering in your gut, uh, having your intestines twisted for someone else. Uh, So much so that you're propelled into action on their behalf. I wonder how compassionate you are this morning, how compassionate I am. Matthew's already told us explicitly of Jesus showing compassion. In chapter 9, he has compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, in chapter 14, Uh, as he lands on the other side of the lake, uh, trying to get away, to come to terms uh, with his cousin John the Baptist's death, he's instead greeted by the crowds and he has compassion on them. People who are harassed and helpless, those who come to him, who seek him out, with all their troubles and difficulties, stir Jesus in his gut. They move him to action. They cause him to reach out. Time and again we see it, don't we, as we read through the Gospels. He heals, he comforts, he strengthens, he saves. Reaching out to the least, the lost, and the last. He gives of himself that others might be well, that they might have peace, healing, and salvation. And all of those things make verses 21 to 28 of our passage this morning, particularly verses 22 to 27, uh, this incident with the Canaanite woman 
Well, it all makes this incident somewhat puzzling and confusing. Uh, Because these verses give the impression of Jesus being anything but compassionate. One commentator calls Jesus' attitude here brutal, offensive, the worst kind of chauvinism, incredible insolence, and atrocious. Hardly words that you would associate with compassionate. And yet, as we look at this passage, despite the struggles that we might have with Jesus' approach uh, in these verses, I'm convinced that at the heart of these incidents that we'll touch on, Jesus is demonstrating the deepest compassion both to the crowds in verse 32, as we're told explicitly, but also to the Canaanite woman and to the disciples. And in showing compassion and in Matthew uh, telling us about it, Jesus would have us learn more of who he is and what it means to come in faith to him. Uh, Many of you be familiar with C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a point in the book where Susan and Lucy are in conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan. Uh, Is is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, we might not get Jesus. Uh, We might have struggles with him. But he is good. And he is full of compassion to any and all who come to him. So on that note, cast your eye down to verse 21. As we see, first of all, Jesus having compassionate on a desperate outsider. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You'll remember if you were here two weeks ago that Jesus has just been confronted by the Pharisees, the religious elite, about his approach to some of their traditions and rituals. And his response, if you look up at verse 12 causes great offense. He's aroused their hostility, and it's time to get out of their way for a bit. 
and so he withdraws. He takes some time out. He heads northwest of Galilee to the coast. It's about 35 miles from Galilee to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are enemy territory. In Joel chapter 3, we're told how the people of Tyre and Sidon had mistreated God's people in the past. God says of them, You took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. They were complicit in scattering God's people throughout the nations. As a result, they're not viewed favorably by the Jewish prophets or by the Jewish people. So for Jesus, a Jew, to withdraw to that region would raise an eyebrow or two. It's clearly an indication that he does want time out of the spotlight, some rest and relaxation, a holiday. Note to the workaholics here, if Jesus needed time out, so do you. Well, Mark tells us in his account of uh, this incident in chapter 7 of his gospel that Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. And so it is, as we look back down at Matthew 15, 22, that a Canaanite woman from that vicinity comes to him. Mark calls her a Syrophoenician, but Matthew perhaps as an indicator of what's to come, paints her in a rather unfavorable light. A Canaanite woman. Now, Canaan, uh, we first come across him. He's Noah's grandson. Uh, We come across him in Genesis chapter 9 when he and his descendants are cursed by Noah. You'll have to look at Genesis chapter 9 to see the story. And that sets a precedent that throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Canaanites are very much the despised enemies of God's people. But by the time of the New Testament, the term Canaanite as a description seems to have been superseded by more up-to-date terms. I guess there are few of us in here today who would claim to live in the kingdom of Mercia, for example. Indeed, Canaanite, this is the only time that that word is used in the New Testament. Eyebrows should really be raised at this moment. She really is being presented in a most unfavorable light if you're a Jew. But this Canaanite woman has heard of Jesus And on hearing that he's in the area, she hunts him out, crying out or literally screaming out over and over again, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. How she knew about Jesus, we don't know. But what is clear is that unlike many of the people that Matthew has introduced us to, She knows exactly who Jesus is. 
Lord. She recognizes his authority, her unworthiness. Son of David, she recognizes his identity. It's something Matthew's been teaching us ever since uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 of his gospel. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, Jesus is God's chosen, appointed king, the promised son of David, the Jewish Messiah, the one who's come to bring justice, to make things right. And this Canaanite woman recognizes that. It is a staggering confession for a woman from that region. As far as Jewish ritual and custom went, she was about as far from God as it was possible to be. And yet, when it comes to recognizing the true identity of God's Jewish Messiah, she is closer than anyone we've yet met. And she cries out for mercy because, verse 22, she's in anguish. Her daughter is demon-possessed, and not just demon-possessed, suffering terribly. It could be translated cruelly or wickedly demon-possessed. It's bad enough that she's a woman from Cana, and yet here she is with a daughter who is possessed by the devil. Picture her agony for a moment. A precious daughter, desperately suffering. Isn't it a mother's worst nightmare? Was she self-harming? Was she threatening others? Was the demon causing her to convulse and fit? We can only guess. How many doctor's appointments had there been? How many trips to A&E? How often had social services or the police been around? This desperate mother, full of compassion for her daughter, is at her wit's end. But after all these months, perhaps years, the Jewish Messiah is here. And what's more, he's in the area. Of course, she went to find Jesus. And yet, verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. Do you know that feeling here this morning? Jesus saying nothing as you cry out to him. Prayers bouncing off the ceiling. Cries of desperation, but seemingly nothing in response. I suspect many here can relate to that. And to make matters worse, what do we see the disciples doing? So that his disciples, verse 23, came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. It's possible they're encouraging Jesus to just get on and heal her. But they certainly don't have time for her. They don't have compassion for her. She's an unwanted distraction. She's 
in the way. I wonder if you can relate to that as well this morning. And how many of us, to our shame, have treated others like that? It's bad enough that God seems to be ignoring us, but to rub salt into the wounds, his so-called followers can't be bothered with us either. Being in anguish can be a very lonely place to be. Well, by verse 24, Jesus rebukes the disciples, calls the woman, grants her request. Well, that's what we're expecting, is what we're hoping, isn't it? But Matthew isn't one for glossing over the hard bits. Instead, we're faced with some of the most challenging words to come from Jesus' lips. Verses 24 to 27. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Jesus replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What's going on? How can Jesus, who only a few verses later proclaims his compassion to thousands, appear so abrupt and rude? I think there are three things to say. Firstly, as with all incidents in the Gospels, we're not given the full details. Not everything is included. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Matthew has carefully arranged his material to give us a faithful version of the events without necessarily including all that was said. So since rejoining Matthew's Gospel at the beginning of the year, uh, back at the end of chapter 13, we've seen Jesus' hometown reject him because they think they know him. Uh, We've seen Herod care more about his reputation than God's messengers and God's word to him. We've seen the Pharisees more interested in their tradition than obedience to God's son, God's word. And at the same time, we've seen the disciples doubting, lacking faith, uh, and being a bit dull. All of these people are, to some extent, insiders from a Jewish point of view. But they're either slow to grasp who Jesus really is, as in the case of the disciples, or they're blinded by their own sin and prejudices to who Jesus really is as the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah. And by putting this incident here, Matthew clearly wants us to see this woman in contrast to them, to see her faith, her clear understanding of who Jesus is, and what it means to come to him. Why Matthew doesn't give us more context or detail, we can only speculate, but he's given us enough. Enough to see that this woman is a total outsider, almost as far out as it's possible to be from God's kingdom, from God's people. And yet... She understands more about who Jesus is and what faith in Jesus involves than anyone else 
Matthew's mentioned, and he doesn't even give us a name. Meanwhile, the disciples' somewhat uncompassionate reaction to her is something of a concern. Second thing is that words on a page don't convey a tone of voice, body language, or the attitude with which Jesus spoke. And then thirdly, if you look down, nothing Jesus says puts her off. Uh, she doesn't be, she's not phased, she's not put off by anything Jesus said. Uh, when he says he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, she kneels at his feet and asks for help. Uh, she willingly takes a position of humble worship. Uh, she's not phased by the implication that she's a dog at the bottom of the pecking order asking for children's bread. Instead, she seems to acknowledge her unworthiness and points out that even dogs eat their master's crumbs. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman by a well, and she is astonished that Jesus, a Jew, should even speak to her. It's not what Jewish men did. This is a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon, enemy territory, with a demon-possessed daughter. A Jewish man who cared anything for his reputation would remain silent. But Jesus is compassionate. His words may seem odd, but he speaks to her. And ultimately, if you look down at verse 28, he says, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Her daughter was healed at that moment. Reminiscent of Jesus and the centurion, Roman centurion in chapter 8, Jesus commends her faith, this faith of an outsider as far as it seems from God as anyone could be, shows those who are close, who should know better, what faith really looks like. Jesus grants her request. He heals her daughter. There's no special prayers or rituals. There's no candles. There's not even a laying on of hands. The daughter's at home. Jesus gives the word because he's Lord of all. The Canaanite woman knew it. She came, she cried for mercy, she knelt, she pleaded. And Jesus, in his compassion, granted her request and commended her faith. Friends, Jesus isn't indifferent to our prayers, our cries, our circumstances. It may seem at times like prayers bounce off the ceiling. It may seem that Jesus has no interest in us. And it may be that, sadly, Jesus' followers throw salt on our wounds. But Jesus does see. Jesus does hear. Jesus does care. Jesus does have compassion. And it might just be that in his great compassion, he's wanting to strengthen our faith. Or even use our faith as he did in this instance, to strengthen the faith of others. 
Because Jesus' compassion extends to all. Our suffering and our anguish pain him. But so does our sin and our prejudice. They cause him to churn inside with compassion too. And as well as showing compassion to this Canaanite woman, I believe that the way that Matthew's put this section together shows us Jesus' compassion challenging his uncompassionate disciples. Let me explain. In verses 17 to 20 that we looked at two weeks ago, Jesus explains to his disciples that it's what comes out of our mouths that defiles us because those things come from our heart. Well, if you look at verse 23, the disciples have clearly taken that on board, haven't they? Not. Uh, What do they say? Send her away. That their words are betraying the attitudes of their hearts. They lack compassion. Their hearts are defiled. They need a compassionate saviour to save and to change them. Don't we all? And in Jesus' compassion for them, his desire to free them from a bondage of sin and prejudice, well, he draws out the incredible faith of this woman as an example. And at the same time, shows his heart of compassion for her. If you have a look down at verse 24, there's a bit of an ambiguity here. Is Jesus answering the disciples? Is he speaking to the woman? Is it a bit of both? Well, it's interesting to compare this with Mark's version of the incident. Because in Mark's version, we have no mention of the disciples. And interestingly, there's no equivalent of verse 24 either. Jesus saying that he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Could it be then that Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel as a mild rebuke to his disciples? As if to say, why do you need to get me involved in this situation? According to you, I've only come for Israel's lost sheep. If that's the case... Why are you getting me involved? Because she's not a lost sheep from Israel. But if I have come for people like her, if I should be healing people like her daughter, why aren't you showing her more compassion? Could it be that verse 24 is a double-edged sword? cutting the disciples open, revealing the prejudice and uncompassion of their hearts. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 comes to mind. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the intentions of the heart. Turn with me to verse 31. Here we have a great crowd praising the God of Israel after Jesus' healings in verse 30. It's a strange phrase for Jewish people, the lost sheep of Israel, to be making. 
Unless, of course, the crowd was made up of Gentiles, non-Jews, like the Canaanite woman. Mark's version in chapter 8 of his gospel, interestingly, suggests that they are Gentiles. And it suggests that Jesus believes that he hasn't just come for the lost sheep of Israel. Furthermore, why does Jesus need to explicitly tell the disciples in verse 32 that he has compassion on people unless he wants to help them learn more of his heart, more of the overwhelming compassion that he feels for the lost, the hungry, those who are suffering, whatever their creed or color or background even people from the Netherlands. I don't know about you, but as I look at the disciples and their lack of compassion, their need for Jesus to teach them again and again, to learn more of Jesus' heart for the least, the last, and the lost, I see myself all too clearly, all too uncomfortably clearly. I have so much to learn about what it means to be compassionate. And yet, amazingly, Jesus' compassion reaches even to me with my uncompassionate, prejudiced heart. He wants to help me, to help grow me, that I might be more like him that you might be more like him. That's what churns with inside him. We were made to be like him, and it pains him when our circumstances or our own hearts take us away from who we should be. There is no one beyond the reach of Jesus' love and compassion however least or last or lost they might be. 26 years ago, I spent six months working with a Glaswegian Baptist minister. Uh, his name was Dave, uh, and we were in Italy. Now, I was doing a bit like you guys were doing in the REACH team. Uh, I was working in Italy with a group of uh, youngsters my own age, uh, and we were helping Dave uh, as he was serving out in Italy. Uh, and while we were there, Dave shared his testimony with us. Before becoming a Christian and a missionary, he worked as a mechanic in one of the roughest parts of Glasgow. He wasn't someone you wanted to get on the wrong side of. He wasn't someone you wanted to wind up. Unbeknown to him, a junior mechanic was a Christian. And on one Sunday, this junior mechanic was encouraged to picture the last person that he knew personally who he could imagine coming to the Lord Jesus, giving his life to Christ. He was encouraged to pray for that person, to look for opportunities to witness to that person. Well, for this junior colleague, Dave was the last person he could imagine becoming a Christian. But he took on the challenge. He started praying for him daily. He started looking for opportunities to share with Dave 
about the compassion and grace of the Lord Jesus. And long story short, despite being pinned to the wall, despite being threatened with broken legs, despite being told to shut up about Jesus, the prayers and compassion of this colleague won through. And after about a year of resistance, Dave gave his life to the Lord Jesus. Who among your friends, who among my friends or colleagues or acquaintances is the least, the last, and the lost? Uh, We can all think of uh, people on the TV screens. But who do you know personally who is the last person you could imagine giving their life to Jesus? Why not commit to praying for them? to asking God for opportunities to show them his compassion through you to see what happens as you do. Because Jesus has compassion for them as much as he has compassion for you and for me. Well, time is nearly gone, but turn briefly with me to verses 29 to 30. Because here we see Jesus showing that compassion to the hungry and helpless. In verse 28, the Canaanite woman, a Gentile, gets a crumb and it brings total and complete satisfaction. By verse 37, we have 4,000 men and women, uh, men besides women and children, having bread in abundance. And prior to that, in verse 30, we see Jesus healing the lame, the blind, the crippled the mute. It's very similar to the feeding of the 5,000, except this seems to happen in Gentile territory, not Jewish territory. An abundance for those who are not the lost sheep of Israel. Throughout this gospel so far, Matthew's been hinting at this. Uh, In chapter 1, think of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They weren't Jewish in Jesus' genealogy. Think of the wise men in chapter 2. They weren't Jewish. Think of the centurion or the two demon-possessed men in chapter 8. They weren't Jewish. Think of Jesus' commission at the end of the gospel to go into all the world. These un-Jewish people came to Jesus, were welcomed by him. Or in the case of the women in chapter 1, Jesus came from them. And as we wrap up, my guess is that not many of us this morning have Jewish ancestry. For the most part, we're Gentile dogs. And yet Jesus came that he might have compassion on us, that he might satisfy us, that his crumbs might provide us with the abundance, that he might help us and heal us and welcome us into his flock. I don't know who you resonate most with this morning. Perhaps you're like the Canaanite woman. In a way, we all are. Uh, Most of us are Gentiles here, Gentile dogs, unworthy. Are you crying out to Jesus, but he appears to be silent? Maybe you're experienced the pain of uncompassionate disciples a lack of care or compassion from fellow believers. Maybe you are one of those disciples, knowing 
and ashamed that you've lacked compassion. Perhaps you're like the crowds, hungry for healing and wholeness. Or maybe you see yourself as too lost, too least, too last for Jesus to bother with you. Well, wherever you stand, this passage shows us that there's no one beyond the reach of Jesus' compassion. No one for whom Jesus' insights don't churn with suffering. Let's pray together. And as we do, can I encourage you to look down at verse 32. And instead of these people, why don't you read your own name? Or the name of that person you know who is the least, the last, and the lost into that verse as we pray together. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for Jonathan, Sam, Hannah, Angela, Jill, whoever you are. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus' heart of compassion reaches even unto us. Lord, you know our situations, our struggles, our sufferings, our anguish, our pain. You know our hearts. How so often so many of us are defiled in the way that we speak, lacking in love, lacking in compassion, ignoring or impatient with those you love and you cherish. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you offer us forgiveness. Thank you that you offer us healing. Please make us more like you. And we ask that you would increase our faith and give us cause to rejoice in your goodness and compassion that we'd be willing to share what we have with those who we know who are the least, the last, and the lost. For Jesus' honour we pray.